Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult series. Be sure to visit primed.com podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME-CE credit. Peter is a 68-year-old retired teacher who comes in for follow-up from the emergency department. He had been feeling fatigued and went to the emergency room where they found him to be in atrial fibrillation with a rapid ventricular response. He had a workup looking for causes and was subsequently started on anticoagulation to prevent thromboembolic events. And he was given metoprolol to control his rate. He's feeling somewhat better today. He asks you, is this AFib thing something I have to just live with? Will I ever get back to normal? Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today to discuss atrial fibrillation is Alan Ehrlich, Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and the Executive Editor at Dynamed. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Frank. Happy to be here. Great. Uh, Boy, atrial fibrillation challenged me in residency. It's challenged me in practice ever since. Um, What are our concerns about new onset AFib, and what evaluation is needed before we initiate treatment? So with atrial fibrillation, there are three things you're going to be concerned about, particularly in the new onset patient. First of all, is the rate causing a strain on the heart? Many of the patients I see with new onset AFib have rapid ventricular response, and obviously, if you've got a heart rate 140, 150, uh, that's something that needs to be brought under control. The second thing is, what are the possible causes? And then finally, what is the patient's risk for thromboembolism? So in terms of uh, the possible causes, generally what you're doing is you're looking for something that can be treated and reversed although sometimes you'll find things that may explain the reason for the AFib, but there's not much you can do about it. The basic workup that I think most people uh, should have includes a cardiac echo looking for structural abnormalities. You definitely want to look at the the size of the left atrium because that has both um, uh, diagnostic uh, implications as well as Uh, prognostic implications, the larger left atrium, the less likely you're going to revert to sinus rhythm. Also, you want to look for mitral valve abnormalities. Uh, From a blood perspective, you know, certainly uh, TSH looking for thyrotoxicosis, uh, checking electrolyte abnormalities. And for electrolytes, it's probably a good idea to consider calcium magnesium in there as well. You you know, in the right age group, you certainly want to be ruling out MI. And if there's some question of cardioversion, being considered, you may want to be considering a transesophageal echo to look for any uh, thrombus in the left atrial appendage. So that would be the basic evaluation I think most patients should have uh, in order to see is there something that we can do about it. And then otherwise, we have to make sure that the rate is okay. And occasionally, I certainly see patients who are coming in with a uh, a rate in the 70 or 80 range in AFib and something that's new to them. They never knew they had that before. In that case, you just need to worry about the workup and, and the rate's okay by itself. Well, it's interesting you mentioned about the rate because um, I, I've, I've always felt maybe inappropriately that if I was had a patient with new, on, a, new onset AFib, my goal 
or my, my goal with the cardiologist should be to, to convert them back and not just try to control the rate, um, but get them back into a, a sinus rhythm. Should that be our standard of care now? So this debate of rate control versus rhythm control has been going on as long as I've been in medicine. And from a theoretical perspective, rhythm control is better. Like we know that uh, the atrial kick gives you better ejection fraction, uh, more effective pumping of the left ventricle. And yet, despite the theoretical idea that rhythm control is better, it, in studies that have been done, and really a lot of this data goes back to the early 2000s, it showed that when you look at uh, heart outcomes like mortality or stroke, really there wasn't a, a clear benefit to rhythm control over just rate control. And I think that's been something that a lot of us have accepted, although it is a little frustrating that that's the case because the, the scientists in us want patients to be in the normal science rhythm. It's called normal for a reason. But, <laughs> but at the same time, since those studies had been published, there's been a lot of improvements in rhythm control. So let's talk about what's the traditional indications for rhythm control. The traditional indications for rhythm control are patients who can't achieve adequate rate control or those who remain symptomatic despite being on rate, adequate rate control. And finally, there's always been this notion that patients with new onset AFib deserve at least an attempt to restore them to sinus rhythm and see how long they'll stay in it. The, it it's, it's unclear how effective that is. Many patients who are in AFib will spontaneously go back into sinus rhythm at times. Some people have paroxysmal AFib, where it's only brief episodes. And so the notion of how much we should be doing to uh, try and force a rhythm, uh, a proper rhythm, has been unclear. So there was actually a large uh, study that was just published called the East AFNET study, almost uh, 27, almost 2,800 patients who had had AFib for less than a year, and they were randomized to rate versus rhythm control. And again, the logic here is, okay, we're, we were better at catheter ablation. There's some new drugs that are available that had not been previously available. So let's see if rhythm control uh, makes a difference. What they found was that at two years, there was uh, the, the people who were uh, assigned to rhythm control more of them were in normal sinus rhythm, about 82%, compared to those who were assigned to rate control. And so of those who were assigned to rate control, no attempt to uh, force them into sinus rhythm unless they became symptomatic or had those other indications, 60% of them were in sinus rhythm. Wow. When they looked at the number of events of either acute coronary syndrome or uh, stroke or hospitalization or worsening heart failure, these were the uh, they did a composite outcome the rate at, at about five years of follow-up was 5% with rate control and 3.9% with rhythm control. And so it was better with rhythm control, but not a lot better. Mm -hmm. uh, they looked at stroke in particular. Um, stroke rates at uh, two years, it was 0.6% with rhythm control and 0.9% with rate control. So you've got a, you know, a difference there of 0.3% would give you a number needed to treat of over 300. So there seems to be some small benefit with uh, rhythm control, but that has to be you know, looked at in the context of you have to 
Often you have to go through procedures. The procedures are associated with uh, major bleeding at times. Uh, drugs have side effects. Antiarrhythmic anti agents for the heart have a long history of doing more damage than good. So you have to be very careful about this. But in the right patient, and again, you know, Peter, all things considered, is relatively young. Um, so he might benefit from a, a longer duration in sinus rhythm that might be achieved with attempting rhythm control. Well, I think my assumptions have always been, and I find the, the the data you presented fascinating. My assumptions have always been: if you move the patient from AFib, you you got them under rhythm control. You move them back to sinus rhythm, that the need for anticoagulation went away. Um, or they, do they still need anticoagulation? So I think you can find some patients who might be able to avoid anticoagulation, but it's not many. I think the most typical example is someone who uh, perhaps has a clear provoking event for AFib. Uh, it's acute onset. They may get cardioverted, and then you're going to certainly anticoagulate them for at least a month after that. But what we know is that, again, I, I mentioned many of these patients are going in and out of AFib. Paroxysmal AFib, uh, patients who are having periods of science rhythm intermingled with AFib, these people have increased risks for stroke compared to the general population. And most, uh, and, and so anyone with paroxysmal AFib should be on uh, anticoagulation. And so these patients who are on rhythm control, how well do we know that they're not going in and out? That they may be primarily in sinus rhythm, but if they're having intermittent episodes of AFib for any number of reasons, that places them at increased risk. When they did the original studies looking at rate versus rhythm control, they found the number one factor associated with preventing stroke was whether you were on anticoagulation, regardless of whether you had rate or rhythm control. And so in this trial that I mentioned, the East AFNET trial, uh, at uh, two years, 90% of the patients in both arms were still on anticoagulation. So the reason for rhythm control isn't to avoid anticoagulation. The need for anticoagulation is going to be driven by typically the CHADS-VASC-2 score or some other similar uh, clinical prediction rule that tells you what is the patient's risk for stroke. And then on the other hand, what's the risk for bleeding? And the tool I use for that is the HAS-BLED score, which you know lets you then have an informed discussion with your patients of what's the benefit and the risk uh, associated with anticoagulation. Alan, that, that's really fascinating. So whether you have rate or rhythm control, you still should be on anticoagulation. And it certainly sounds like the least invasive approach is getting people um, under rate control and, and worry less about rhythm. Thank you very much. This is a great paper, and, and real, I learned a great deal from it. Thanks a lot, Frank. Practice pointer. In atrial fibrillation, rhythm control may provide a slight benefit to lower the risk of stroke. But overall, there are risks in, involved and there is little difference in symptoms or outcomes at two years between rate versus rhythm control. Join us next time while we review the data on an intensive behavioral intervention for obese individuals from underserved settings to help them live longer and better. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primed.com slash podcast and see you next week.